and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so I am at uh, AI's World Forum, which is a very strictly off-the-record thing. It's arguably my, at least until the dispatch events get up and going, which will be hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, actually, I know it'll be sooner rather than later, depending upon what kind of timeline uh, or time scale we're talking about. Um, but anyway, uh, it's World Forum is like my favorite event of the year. I love Seattle uh, in Georgia. Um, I get to see a bunch of my favorite colleagues and a bunch of people I don't normally see for much of the year. And um, it's a grand time, you know, and we have sessions where we figure out how to control the weather and keep the electric car from coming online. We've kind of dropped the ball on that one, I got to say. Um, but, you know, um, Steve Gutenberg had a good run, thanks to us. Anyway, uh, if you don't get those references, I'm sorry. That's, you know, uh, you can ask for your money back for this free podcast. So uh, it's a little awkward and different than normal because I just commandeered some, uh, a random sort of solarium that I was told wouldn't be used. And I closed some doors, so I don't know what the audio sounds like. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, as they say, um, starting now um, in my line of work, bad audio rolls downhill. So Ryan or somebody else will fix it, hopefully. Um, so I don't know exactly. I have literally nothing in front of me to um, talk about. And it's a little awkward because, uh, again, everything here is supposed to be off the record. But um, uh, where to begin? I guess, you know, one of the things that's sort of in my head is... Um, um, a small Polish American gentleman clawing his way out. No, I'm sorry. That's just the, the microdosing talking. Um, uh, I listened to Matt Continetti give his book talk um, on his new book, which is coming out. And yes, there will be there will be flood the zone coverage of the new book um, on the Remnant. We'll have him on. I've already talked to him about it. Um, really like the talk. Um, I haven't dived into the book yet because everything has just been so insanely busy. But um, um, it was interesting. I don't, I, I, and 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 it's definitely going to be a big and important book. I think it's going to be like the, you know, the sort of de debate defining thing about American conservatism for a while, whether you agree with it or not. Um, so I want to be very careful about. I'm not feeling anything out of school. I hope I'm just building anticipation for it, but I listened to his talk and it's difficult for me to listen to talks about the history of modern American conservatism, because even though I know there are a bunch of people who know that stuff better than I do, and we've had many of them on, on the remnant, I know it really well. I feel like I know what I know about that stuff. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I'm just sort of like, yeah, I either, yeah, I knew that, or that's not what, you know, whatever. I mean, there was some stuff that was like really interesting that I didn't realize. Um, and, um, and I'm going to have some fun arguments with, with Matt on here, but anyway, uh, enough, uh, uh, throat clearing. So 
he's got this these competing he's got these this basic argument about the sociology of the of the American right going back the last hundred years, which I largely agree with that and it's something I've written um in various places is that it's it's wrong to talk about a single conservatism right there are competing factions within intellectual conservatism and within political conservatism and their and political conservatism and intellectual conservatism are not the same thing um in fact uh as matt rightly notes you know the the intellectuals are the smallest um arguably the smallest faction of the american right but they get a lot of the attention because they're the ones talking about the ideas um, for the purposes of this podcast, I, you know, I've said this before, I don't love calling myself an intellectual. It's not that I don't think I qualify as one necessarily. There's just something really pretentious about calling yourself an intellectual, at least that feels that way to me. Um, and when I think of public intellectuals, um, you know, a topic that I've spent a lot of time reading and thinking about, I think of people who are a lot smarter than me and a lot more famous than me and a lot more important than me. And it feels like I am trying to glam onto their notoriety. You know, like I'm no Irving Kristol, I'm no John Maynard Keynes, I'm no Friedrich Hayek or any of that kind of stuff. And so when I categorize myself the same way, it just uh, it feels weird. But for the purposes of this, I'll say, yeah, clearly a guy who runs a podcast called The Remnant, um, which was inspired by an essay by a guy named Albert J. Nock in The Atlantic in the 1930s. Um, intellectual fits more than activist. Um, and, uh, so anyway, I agree with all that. And I asked the question at the end of the talk, um, um, about, you know, I was, and again, don't want to like, really don't want to steal any of Matt's thunder, but I was like, you know, Matt, I largely agree with you about, you know, the way you describe the, the sociology of, of, the history of the conservative movement, and it's really a bunch of different factions competing for different priorities. Um, and so I agree with that as a political or descriptive, um, you know, bit of analysis. But you know, it still leaves the question because people use philosophy kind of glibly. Um, uh, I'm not saying Matt does, but it's just it's one of those words that can mean both something super, super serious and, and systematic and, uh, and, uh, sort of comprehensive in a, as a worldview and an understanding of reality. And people also use philosophy as kind of like, you know, uh, you know, the, their explanation for why they use their foot to lift the toilet seat in gas, gas station bathrooms. Right. And these are sort of different things. And, um, and so anyway, I, you know, I asked this question about, you know, is there, you know, if we're going to compare and contrast, you know, something called conservatism, um, with things that are not conservative, is there some underlying metaphysic, some commonality of the Venn diagram that, um, that says this bunch of people or this bunch of ideas are conservatives and, and the people outside of the shaded part are not. Um, and I'll leave, I'll ask this exact question of Matt the next time he's on. Um, and I'll leave his answer out of it, which I thought was fine. I mean, I got my disagreements with it and I will give you the answer that was in my head. So I'm not stealing any of his thunder or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and I've written about this a bunch over the years. Uh, I, 
I think there is a metaphysic um, by which I mean um, a fundamental theory about the workings of reality that is independent of, uh, you know, um, caught partisan considerations, you know, and I mean partisan, I mean in the broadest sense possible. I don't mean like a Republican, you know, metaf- you know, anyway, I don't mean like party partisanship. I mean like, you know, special pleading for certain ideas and all these kinds of things. You know, there's a, there's a metaphysic behind Christianity um, and, and Judaism and a lot of those types of things that has nothing to do with sort of conventional party politics. I think everybody can kind of agree with that, even though there are lots of people who would dispute what the metaphysic is or how it relates to contemporary politics. Anyway, I think, you know, the, the, the best attempt I've had, I've come up with, was sort of explaining the, the philosophical temperament or the metaphysic of conservatism is a fundamental comfort with contradiction. That this understanding that contradiction may not be sown into the physical reality of the cold, impersonal forces of, you know, entropy and whatnot, but contradiction is built directly into the fabric of human nature. And um, what I mean by that is that conservatives have an appreciation, uh, regardless of like where you come down on taxes, where you come down on like abortion, whether you come down on foreign policy, um, uh, the thing that sort of unites most, you know, that, that, that unites the sort of philosophical worldview of, of something that we can call conservative, at least in the Anglo-American tradition, is this fundamental, you know, com- comfort with contradiction. And, and so what I mean by that is that we, all conservatives of all stripes, stripes understand this basic idea from Soul and from Hayek and from others that um, everything's about trade-offs, um, in part because there's a clock running on our lives. And so, uh, and so when I say about trade-offs, I don't mean just like government spending, but that there are trade-offs there too, or government policy. I mean in, like, in the most fundamental areas of all of our lives. If you're going to spend the weekend working and you got small kids, that's one more weekend out of the, uh, of the, the finite number of weekends you will ever have to spend with your kids. It's a trade-off. It might be necessary to do, right? You might need to make money. You might need to do all sorts of things. You might need to, you know, uh, you know, save your business. It doesn't, my point is, is not to say that, um, losing that weekend with your kids is, is objectively wrong. Um, just that it is um, a choice, right? And you're 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 spending a resource, um, which is your time in one place over um, another, and uh, and so this is one of these sort of fundamental outlooks that I think defines small. Let's call it small C conservatism. And this is not to say that there aren't plenty of liberals that have streaks of this kind of conservatism in them, right? In the same way that there are plenty of conservatives, conservatives that have strong streaks of what we would call liberalism in it. You know, and in fact, American conservatism in many ways is the project of conserving the liberal principles that the, Amer- the, you know, enshrined in the constitution and the American fa- founding. And so I'm not arguing this as some sort of strictly speaking partisan thing, but at the macro level, at the level of the generalization, at the level of where you, can sort of stand back and see trends 
and 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 see the signal rather than the noise um the left has an orientation towards uh reality right towards metaphysics that dislikes this idea that there are inherent trade-offs built into human life built in that and that radiate outwards into politics and economics and all of these kinds of things um as i've written a bunch it's it's you know one of my great complaints in politics is what i call the cult of unity and specifically in for this context um uh the unity of goodness right You'll hear it in the rhetoric of countless democratic and liberal politicians where they'll say, you know, I refuse to believe that um, in this country, X has to come at the expense of Y. And X can be uh, healthy nutrition for children and Y can be, uh, you know, a balanced budget. Um, or it could be, you know, uh, a clean environment versus a robust economy. Um, it can be, uh, efficient hiring practices versus, you know, equity and equality. And, you know, you can go down the long list. There's this idea that you find in, in liberal left rhetoric and in arguments that says all good things can go together, that there are no trade-offs, that X never has to come at the expense of Y and vice versa. And that's just not how life works. I mean, there may be moments where in a particular granularity, you know, there is a sort of win-win kind of scenario where just everything comes up right, but that's one of the definitions of luck. Um, again, at the level of broad generalization, there is, you know, we are built from the crooked tip of humanity and it'll never be fully straight. And, and what comes with that? Hi. That's right. You got to do something in here? Okay, great. That's right. Okay, so I don't know how Ryan is going to handle that audio issue, but because uh, um, I I got to explain to you, dear leader, dear dear listeners, um, that uh, giant crew of dudes just came in here and took a bunch of chairs with dollies and made a big racket. So, um, and I helped them out. So it was about a five minute break between whatever I was just saying and where I am. So, uh, we'll, we'll try to massage this, but, uh, so I think where I was, was I was talking about how there's a, um, you know, that at that, at the level of generalization, the, the left thinks that, um, all contradictions can be resolved, right? This is the fundamental essence of Marxism, which is, you know, a fundamentally religious outlook, which says that. When you get the right, if you jiggle the dials on um, material forces and class consciousness and all of these things in just the right way, boom, you are delivered outside of history where everybody can be a hunter in the morning and a poet in the afternoon and there's no scarcity, there are no trade-offs. Everybody gets to fulfill this extremely poetic, romantic vision of what it means 
to be a fully realized human being. And um, just so you know, the economics of that don't work, right? And, you know, and, and in fairness, and I've always thought that, you know, there is a certain possibility to um, the Marxist dream, but you need to get to the point where energy is, is, is indistinguishable from free, you know, maybe lots of fusion, and everybody can have their own holodeck. And, um, and then you could see some sort of Marxian fantasy, but at the same time, uh, my sense is that, that, the, that the drawbacks of that life um, in the sort of, like in Wally, the movie, um, would become apparent because again, this world is one of trade-offs and contradictions. And, um, and so anyway, I think that metaphysic isn't just like this sort of like, you know, it, it's not just the Tom soul argument about the constrained versus unconstrained vision, although that captures a lot of this stuff. Um, uh, this comfort with contradiction thing is, I, is again, I don't think it's the underlying metaphysic. I think it's the best way to describe the orientation or temperament of conservatives and where it comes from is that fundamentally, you know, uh, even if, even for non-religious conservatives, it comes from a religious inheritance about, um, the nature of life, the nature of a good life, um, very heavily influenced by Christianity, obviously. Um, and, um, and the, the left's vision is um, there's actually a lot more to be recommended about it, I think, than conservatives sometimes want to um, acknowledge because, how to put this, there is, um, you know, the, we can debate what constitutes progress, moral progress, material progress, all these kinds of things to a certain extent, but th this refusal to accept the nature of reality is one of the fundamental things that has driven human progress um, for the last 10,000, 20,000 years. It's this sort of, you know, it's like that Star Trek where um, Kirk has to fight, I think it's called a Gorn, that lizard dude. Um, and Kirk is horribly outmatched by the super strong Gorn. And so he has to figure out how to use the raw materials around on the planet to make a uh, gun, right? It's sort of like uh, we've been put on this earth, human beings have put on this earth to be problem solvers. And at the heart of the sort of liberal experiment, um, in the small L liberal experiment, is this idea of not taking what nature says at face value and saying, no, actually, maybe there is a cure for that disease. You know, maybe we can come up with something like penicillin. Maybe we can come up with something um, that lets us fly. I am not attributing, like, all innovation, all flight, uh, all cool stuff to, you know, the Michael Dukakai of the world. I'm not saying this is a democratic, liberal thing in that sense. I'm saying that this uh, temperament, this orientation towards the world to sort of say, actually, we can, we can beat this problem, that we don't have to accept these trade-offs, is one of the great things about Western civilization. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, um, conservatism in the American political tradition wants to conserve liberalism, right? I mean, there's a reason why I, I believe the only time the word right appears in the Constitution, not the Bill of Rights, just the Constitution, is for copyright. You know, like the conservative vision 
in, a, in the Anglo-American tradition wants to preserve these institutions that allow people to pursue happiness, that allow people to be problem solvers, that allow people to, um, uh, you know, move the Overton window on the compromises we have to make. And we don't want to lose that as a culture. The, the, the dynamism, the innovation of liberal democratic capitalism, which is fundamentally liberal in the philosophical sense, is one of the things that we really want to conserve. And, um, and we don't want to simply say, okay, this is as much innovation as we're ever going to need, right? I mean, I have friends who are, you know, they're cornucopians or, and they're like, you know, life extender people who want to, you know, live to be 200. Um, and frankly, if look, if I could be in the shape I was in when I was, I don't know, 22, I wouldn't mind, you know, staying there for about a century or so. But, um, you know, we can make fun of those people and, and I often do, you know, in a friendly way. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can imagine there being an equivalent of somebody in, in the 1820s, you know, never mind even the 1920s saying, you know, does anybody really need to live longer than 50 years? You know, do we really need a life expectancy higher than 55? Um, you know, there's something great and glorious about the, human condition that wants us to push um, the outer boundaries of the limits of nature and reality. And I, so I'm not necessarily condemning that. The, my point about conservatism is that it still understands that at the end of the day, human nature has no history, right? Human nature doesn't change. Maybe we can play games with the genetic code. We can do all sorts of interesting things um, that make us into different species and that, you know, the, the reactionary conservative in me, you know, kicks into overdrive at some of those kinds of ideas. But for, the, for all intents and purposes, we are the same human beings. We're the same creatures that we were 10,000 years ago. And, you know, and I talk about this a lot in my book. I talk about this in book talks all the time. You know, a, if you took a Viking baby today, if you took a, if you could have a time machine, you went back, you know, a thousand years and you grabbed a Viking baby, um, and brought it, you know, to the here and now, it would grow up to be a dentist in New Rochelle. Um, and if you took a, you know, Dr. Rosenberg's baby from New Rochelle and you went back and you gave it to the Viking family, um, it would grow up to rape and pillage the English countryside. Uh, because, you know, there's nothing, we're not born with anything special in any given generation that differentiates us from our ancestors. The things that differentiate us from our ancestor is culture, is uh, civilization. And um, I think a lot of people, you know, this is a point, I'm not the biggest fan of Alan Wolf, but like this is a point he makes very well in his book on liberalism, is that, you know, culture, we, you know, one of my, yeah, culture is, um, has the same root as cultivate, right? It's, it's supposed to be a more active thing. And there are an enormous number of people on the left and the right who want culture to be a static thing. They want it to be a steady state, right? We must preserve this culture. We must not have um, cultural appropriation, right? We have to freeze in amber the American culture the way it is. And look, what has two thumbs and loves American culture? This guy. But the idea that like American culture has ever been static is ludicrous. 
American language has never been static. American cuisine has never been static. I would not want to go back to the American cuisine of, of 50 years ago. Um, I wouldn't want to go back to the American fashion. Well, I'm at American fashion of 50 years ago, maybe. Um, what would be 50 years? No, the American fashion of 100 years ago. I want men to wear hats again, damn it. Um, you know, and even though I personally um, have a real problem wearing hats because I have this enormous misshapen gourd of a head in general, I love those pictures of baseball games where everyone's wearing jackets and ties and wearing hats. But a lot of, most people don't like that kind of stuff. And regardless, my point is, is that, you know, when you start breaking down what a culture is, you know, a lot of the components of it change over time. Um, you know, and like culture, yeah, culture is about some big, serious things, but culture is also about things like fashion and norms and customs and cuisines and tastes. And who wants to stay in a culture that just doesn't change at all? Some people do. That's fine. They pick the wrong country to live in if they're in the United States of America, because American culture, you know, it's in the groundwater that it constantly changes and sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Sometimes both at the same time, which is what happens in large dynamic systems, is that you have uh, evidence of decay and evidence of uh, rejuvenation happening simultaneously in different parts of the system, and that's fine. Um, but culture is, is part of this idea of to cultivate, right? To nurture. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the best soil is active soil. There's a lot of stuff going on in it. And um, I find the weird symmetry between so many of the right-wing arguments and left-wing arguments about culture to be kind of fascinating. The key difference is, is that all non, for, the, for the, the crazy woke left, like all traditional non-Western, non-white, non-European cultures are fantastic and must be frozen in amber. And how dare they change? How dare we have any, uh, you know, uh, distorting effect on them? And let's keep them exactly the way they are. Um, and let's not take, you know, the best parts of their cuisine or their fashion and emulate them. Uh, that belongs to them. And who are we to, to, to steal from it and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, but at the same time, the sort of hyper woke left says, um, you know, white European culture must be systematically deconstructed, destroyed, replaced, um, you know, because it's, it's coterminous with white supremacy and all of this nonsense. Um, sometimes when I hear this stuff, I always think about that scene in one of the airplane movies where they cut to like some hyper left wing feminist saying that the plane crash is really just a symbol of, I don't know, like the patriarchal system, blah, 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 blah. And the sign language person in the background just starts making this sort of uh, masturbatory gesture at the ridiculous of it all. Um, that's how I feel watching vast swaths of cable TV these days. I just, yeah. Um, um, uh, but anyway, where was I? Um, and then the right, has no respect for all those other cultures. I mean, I'm speaking of the area of gross generalization um, um, and doesn't want their influences here, but wants to preserve this, this sort of weird museum notion of what American culture is. Um, and the thing is, look, I, do I think this is American culture? Absolutely. Are there aspects of American culture that I want to keep forever, like openness, um, 
innovativeness, entrepreneurialism, all those bourgeois values. Yeah, I want to keep that stuff real bad. But I don't know that it has anything to do with being white. And, um, and I don't know that it has anything to do with being European. And the simple fact is, is like if you, I bet you, if you, let's put it this way, of the sort of these paleo nationalist conservative types who talk about preserving American culture, I bet you if you spent a week living with any one of them in their homes with their families, you would see such a diversity of customs, attitudes, habits, cuisines. Um, you know, everyone might say grace, but they might say it for a different denomination. You know, everyone might like certain TV shows, but they might like different one. Um, they'd have different drinking habits, different sleeping habits, different organizational, you know, life organizational habits, because people are different. And cultures, you know, good, interesting cultures have an enormous amount of internal um, heterogeneity to them. And, um, and so like, I'm, you know, I'm one of these people who like wants to keep the good stuff and I'm willing to defend it, you know, including all this linguistic stuff. But I also understand that the way you defend it is by, by using and employing it and selling it, not trying to get the state to come in and impose it on anybody. And so I can't remember how I got into this cul-de-sac, but, um, the, this has just been in my head since yesterday in part, because I got to do the, I got to do this big, it's. I give this talk on pretty much every year here and, um, every year I got to come up with something new. Um, they expect it to be funny and, um, serious at the same time. It's, and I see so many people who come to it every year that it puts an enormous amount of pressure on me because I never get a chance to like test drive the, you know, a new talk on a bunch of interns or something. I got to do it on, you know, this room full of, you know, important people, people I respect. Uh, people were important to AI and it just puts a lot of pressure on me. And, uh, so I've been trying to figure out what about what to talk about tomorrow night. Um, I, I know it's sort of unprofessional not to have it nailed down well in advance, but I've just been struggling to figure out how to do it and what to say. And so anyway, I listened to the Matt's thing and I, it just sort of got this stuff in my head and, um, um, so I can't figure out, I can't remember now, did I close the circle on this sort of the metaphysic point to, to, to sum up just in case I didn't, or just to repeat myself if I did, um, this comfort with contradiction thing, um, isn't, doesn't define the metaphysics of conservatism, but it does sort of, it is emblematic of it, right? It draws from, um, a deeper metaphysical theological understanding of the world and where I think you can still be considered of the right without being considered a conservative is when you, um, start abandoning this recognition that there are trade-offs. And I see this all over the place with the populist right. You know, and like, I don't think Donald Trump was in any way a deep thinker. I don't think he has any, like, any clue what, uh, you know, his actual ideology was, or even if he had ones, he always claimed he didn't have an ideology, that he wasn't ideological, that he was, you know, went by his instincts and all that kind of stuff. But that, I'm afraid to tell you, you know, is an ideology too. Um, you know, it's, and it's actually a very progressive worldview, which just simply says that, an individual human instinct, I mean, intellect, either through instinct 
or intuition or reason or just raw cognitive power can figure out how to make decisions for large, diverse, dynamic societies. Um, uh, just because Donald Trump didn't talk like John Dewey or John Maynard Keynes doesn't mean that he didn't share a certain worldview with that kind of progressive vision of things. Um, but you know, you could hear this like aversion to this notion of trade-offs. Uh, sorry, there's just people walking by, and I can't tell if I'm being too loud or not. Um, you could hear this aversion to trade-offs all the time in his condo salesman routine, right? You know, where he would say, you know, when he was when he was still campaigning for president, he was talking about how we're going to cover everybody. Our healthcare system is going to cover everybody. Everybody is going to get great coverage, and it's going to be cheaper or free. Um, uh, you know, he was, he would always say, you know, he said, I'm going to balance the budget, you know, in four years, eliminate the debt. You know, he would say, say whatever he needed to say. And if you told him, well, what about this? He said, well, we got that covered too. Right. And it did not come from an, a systematic or philosophical or intellectual or, 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 you know, like thought through programmatic ideological perspective. But it's sort of the same thing as what you would hear from a lot of, you know, various stripes of the left is that we can do it all. There are no trade-offs, right? We can have, we can spend, we can throw trillions of dollars into the economy and have no inflation. We can uh, cut the military and invite no aggression. Um, uh, we can pick winners and losers in the economy and not lose innovation or competitiveness or efficiency or any of these kinds of things. That's a very, that, that is a unconservative point of view. And you hear it most powerfully from populists of the left and the right these days. Um, you know, I mean, what is modern monetary theory other than um, wish casting? It's magic, right? It's just sort of like, um, it just, oh, oh my gosh, we just stumbled on this formula, this, you know, this incantation, uh, this spell that just so happened to guarantee that we can spend an unlimited amount of money on the things that we want to spend money on. And um, similarly, the, you know, the populist right guy, the post-liberal integralists, all of these people, the national conservatives, um, they talk as if there are no, at least no important trade-offs, right? That with, when they gain power, um, everything will just click together and there will be no, there would be no meaningful losers, at least for our side. And, um, and I think, you know, and this is somewhere I think Matt would agree with me is that one of the things that makes them un unconservative as well is that they just simply reject the liberal part of, of Western tradition. And they do it explicitly, you know, Patrick Deneen and these guys, they, um, you know, they basically say the Enlightenment was a mistake, the founding was a mistake, the Constitution it was a mistake. You know, they may say it by implication in some cases, and they might say it, you know, they might say, oh, well, not the Constitution, but the Enlightenment, as if, like, you cannot have one without the other. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they, um, they reject uh, the, you know, the part of Anglo-American conservatism. They, they, they reject one of the main things that Anglo-American conservatism is supposed to be conserving. And that is, um, that may make them right wing given their other priors and, and ambitions, but it, it just doesn't make them conservative. Um, mobs are not conservative by nature. 
right? By passion. They're not temperamentally conservative. They don't care about the arguments about the trade-offs. They just want what they want and they want it right now. All right. Um, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to call this one short. Um, I had all the answers about inflation in Ukraine for you, but uh, there are people next door and they seem to be gaining in number. So um, thanks for listening. I'm sure this is a short one. Um, and, you know, maybe you'll never hear this at all because for all I know, this was some sort of vision quest thing and I made no sense, whatever. In fact, I was speaking Iroquois the entire time. So with that, I'll see you next time. Greetings, dear listeners. This is... Greetings, dear listeners. Okay, I got to put that closer to my...